Good afternoon, and welcome to another one of the serious security seminars. I was reflecting a little bit earlier that we've been doing this now, I think, 21, 22 years. So the seminar may be older than some of you in the audience uh, and still going strong. Today's speaker is uh, someone that I'm really pleased to have here. I've been uh, asking him now for several years, uh, but he's very busy to work into his schedule to, to come here. Uh, really a thought leader in the field of security and privacy. Uh, there are various ways in which one can assert oneself into what happens in the world. You can work in government, you can work in academia and discover things, you can work in business and create things. Uh, but if the field is going to mature and we're going to make progress, one of the important aspects is, is measurement and, and setting expectations. So you want to go out and be able to measure what's happening at various places. You want to be able to get information from uh, various parties, businesses and government agencies about what's happening in the world so that they can set their own standards. That requires that you have somebody who's trusted and somebody who's able to work with the data. Our speaker today, Dr. Larry Poneman, has been doing this for years. He's very well known in the industry. Uh, the Poneman Institute publishes regularly on a number of topics having to do with security metrics, loss, risk, privacy. He's deeply involved in the development of all these areas. Uh, a, very, a very trusted and distinguished field uh, person in the field and we're uh, extremely lucky to have him here with us today. So please join me in welcoming Dr. Larry Poneman. Thank you so much, Gene. Hello, folks. I'm Larry Poneman, not Pokemon, yeah. or Pokemon Institute. That happens occasionally where we'll get a, uh, you know, we'll get a, a call and they'll say, um, is this Dr. Pokemon? And th there are a couple of reasons for that. I'll just tell you a little story. Uh, there's a big conference every year uh, in the security field called RSA. And it's basically a big get-together of everyone in the security industry, from vendors to practitioners. Normally about 20 or 25,000 people attend this. And they have keynotes. And the keynote presenter was, at that point, the chairman of the Federal Trade Commission. And she was citing four of our studies, and they're all Pokemon. And I said, I said, wait a second. I mean, you must, there must be a reason for this. It turns out in Microsoft, if you type in Poneman, it automatically replaces Poneman with Pokemon. So that was the reason why <laughs> it was in all of it. But, but, but we were kind of acknowledged, and it was good, even if it was Pokemon. So I'm very happy to be here. A little bit about um, who we are and what we do, and then I'll kind of get into the, the weeds. So Poneman Institute is a research company, and we're very boring because all we do is study three things, privacy, data protection, and information security, or now to be cool, we call it cybersecurity. And so my circuitous career is, um, as Gene knows, um, prior to starting the company 13 years ago, I was a senior partner with PricewaterhouseCoopers, and I was responsible for worldwide global risk services, but I also founded the security practice and the privacy practice of the firm. And then before that, I was a partner with KPMG, another large consulting firm, you may have heard of them. Then before that, I was uh, a, a professor, a university professor at a distinguished university. And then before that, I worked uh, eight years in the intelligence community. 
I wasn't a spy. But spies will say that. They'll say, well, no, no, I was just a policy guy. And then before that, um, let's see, can I even think that, that far back? Before that, I was a uh, uh, Navy uh, cryptology. And then even before that, I was a hippie. And I actually tried my, being completely honest here, I know I'm tape recorded, so I'm on the record, but I actually thought I could become a professional musician. This is in the Haight-Ashbury days. Grew my hair really long and uh, played guitar, but not good enough. And I was, became a roadie, and I would set up some of these famous groups, like The Doors and The Canned Heat and a whole bunch of really cool folks. But I ran out of money, and that's why I needed a real job. Okay, so this is my 45-year career. I'm not 45 years old, that's 45. I know I'm an old man, it makes me ancient. Okay, with that being said, let me tell you a little bit about our global cost of data breach. This is a study that our institute has conducted for about 10 years. Now, why is a data breach and the cost of a data breach important? Because how many folks are in the security field? Is it everyone or most of you? Because really, one of the things that is the reality of security is there are lots of pressures on organizations to basically spend money wisely and not spend too much money on security or too much money on privacy. And sometimes people who manage security get short shrift. They, they don't necessarily get their fair share because the senior management, the CEO and the, and the CFO and even boards of directors don't fully understand the economic impact of data loss or the economic impact of a cybercrime. And they basically say, well, you know, there's that target with a big data breach, right? or TJX, that was five or six years ago, or you know these companies that occasionally happen, but they're rare events, they're never gonna happen here. And so one of the things we were motivated to do in this research is to show that there is a very costly impact to data loss or data theft. And there's, uh, we do a comparable study on cybersecurity. A cybersecurity breach, for example, can be very costly. And these are the things that we look at. We basically apply a methodology that I learned about when I was a graduate student at Carnegie Mellon called activity-based costing. We use actually cost, any accountants in this room? No one wants to admit it, you notice that? There might be at least one person. How many people have had that accounting course? You don't even want, okay, at least one person had her hand up like this, you know, looked around, there. okay, there's two. So cost accounting is like the wor world's most boring and worst course in the universe, but it could be very practical in terms of doing the kinds of studies that we do. So anyway, that's kind of a little bit of the backdrop. I'm going to be a talking head for maybe 25 minutes or so. If you have any questions, you could save it to the end or, you know, just stop me at any point in time and I'll hopefully be able to answer your great question. I can't guarantee that. So as I said before, we as an institute are focused on privacy, data protection, and information security. We started the company mostly with the North American focus, but we expanded through an affiliate network now in 26 countries. That gives us a lot of bandwidth to do some very cool research. We're headquartered in Michigan. Anybody from Michigan here? Yay, one person. From, from Traverse City, by any chance? Detroit? I'm sorry to hear it. <laughs> no, it's not so bad. Okay, so anyway, that's who we are and what we do. So before we kind of dive into some of the results, when you do a study like that, when you do a study like this, the unit of analysis is not an individual. The unit of analysis are people who work in companies. In other words, the company itself is what you're analyzing. So when you do a cost study, I mean, you, you need to get information and you get that information from different sources, different places in an organization. In total, 
in this study, we have 10 countries and a total of 314 companies. Basically, it takes 10 months on average to recruit our companies. Now, our sponsor is IBM, and I have to tell you, without IBM support, we would be in deep doo-doo. It's very hard to get the information that we need. So people look at this, like for example, we were talking to the Wall Street Journal and telling them about this great study, and they said, what's the sample size? That's the first thing they always ask of research. Go, what's the sample size? And I said, 314 companies. Oh, that's not large enough. It's, you know, we, do, we only publish 500, you know, but I said, that's companies, my friend, companies, not people. And so one of the things that now we do is we talk about the number of interviews, and we have 1,700 people who basically have, we have contacted to collect the information we need to do the activity-based costing that we present here. Now, um, when we do our research, we do it by, in different countries, and we do a weighted average, and you're going to see, like, the weighted average number. We also convert the local currencies like the pound, the euro, and so on into U.S. dollars. It makes us American-centric, but it's a lot easier to explain than converting it into euros or with some other the yen or some other country. So our 10 country samples are U.S., U.K., Brazil, Germany, India, France, Japan. Now, we call it the Arabian cluster because we didn't have enough sample size. We had Saudi Arabia and we had UAE. So we combined those, Italy and Australia. Now, before I share some of the data points, intuitively, if you had to choose a country, what is the most expensive, where are the most expensive data breaches by geography based on this list? How many people think the United States? Raise your hand. How many people say Germany? Okay. The person who did accounting raised his hand. Okay. How about Germany? How about Saudi Arabia? <laughs> How about you're not raising your hand because you're tired and you worked all day? <laughs> okay, that's fine. So the bottom line is we'll talk a little bit about that. I'm not going to give you the answer just yet. I'll show you the data. Now, this is a, a good, find, a good a very colorful and, and, and pretty uh, pie chart, and there's some, something good and something bad. So we take our 314 companies, and we analyze it according to industry. And if you kind of look at this, you'll notice that the biggest pie, slices of this pretty pie include financial, financial service companies like retail banking, public sector organizations including government, retail organizations like a Target, service organizations, and so on and so forth. Some of the small slices, though, like education and research and health, are so small that you really can't generalize the findings. And this it's a real hard situation for a researcher because we want to present some interesting stuff, but the big caveat here is when we talk about some of these small slices, it's hard to know whether or not you have an anomaly because you have such a small sample size, like one or two companies in a particular sector. Now, the good news, given that we've been doing this over time, we actually do have critical mass, like in financial services, public sector, where we can start to tease out relationships in terms of industry effect and cost. Okay. Now, this is that question I ask you, where is it most expensive? I'm showing two types of cost numbers, a per capita cost, which is per compromised record, and per capita cost in 2014, which is the current year study, and 2013, last year's study. And if you kind of look at the very top, the U.S. is the most expensive, but Germany is really, really close. In fact, looking at that, I just told you something that's not so. Germany is actually more, slightly more expensive on the red last year, and on the blue, slightly less expensive. So they're kind of like equal. Then France, UK, Italy, Australia, Japan, 
the Arabian cluster, which is Saudi Arabia and UAE, Brazil, and India. Now, gut feel, why would the cost of data breach be so much lower, say, in Brazil? Well, number one is the cost of labor is much lower in countries like India and Brazil. And so if you have labor costs associated with the event, which we do, it's basically going to be lower for that, for that reason, and probably for that reason primarily. There may be other factors as well. Now, we talk a little bit about this. Um, let me go back here. You'll see this term occasionally, per capita cost. We take total cost and we divide it by the number of records that were breached, and that gives us a cost per record. From a high science point of view, it's probably not the best way to measure it, but it basically is an easy way to, ex it's easy to explain. And so when we say per compromised record, what do we mean? Because there are a couple of variables that you, we need to, you need to understand before you can try to interpret the meaning of this. Firstly, most of the companies that participate have more than 1,000 employees. So these are larger size companies. Number two, a lot of these organizations have massive data breaches, but the ones that we look at are large but not mega data breaches, and I'll explain in a second. A large data breach is a data breach involving 1,000 records to about 100,000 records. So say you look at Target. Does anybody know how many data records were breached at Target? Anyone want to take a stab at that? There were actually two events. One was a database attack, right? And one was an attack on the point of sale system. But in total, it's theoretically about a, maybe a more, more than 100 million records. That's called a mega, mega data breach. That doesn't happen very often, we hope. Although it happened at Home Depot, I think 60 million. And I think, let's see, what was another really cool data breach? LinkedIn was a big one. Um, eBay had a huge data breach involving just, just your password <laughs> and, your, and, your, yeah, and your username. So it, these mega data breaches are, seem to be happening more frequently, but they're still considered a rare event. The data breaches that we're looking at are large data, breach, data breaches, but they actually happen pretty frequently. These are, not tr these are not like once every 10 years. These things happen maybe once every two or three years. So they're still a big deal. So the total average cost, what does it mean in terms of dollars? And this is not chump change. Just in the U.S. alone, we're looking at about $6 million of cost associated with a material data breach. It's a big deal. Anybody in here ever receive a letter from, say, I don't know, say you have a credit card, uh, or maybe you have a bank account or whatever, saying that your data has been breached? Maybe you have an account like on eBay. Anybody ever have that happen? Well, it happens to just about everybody. If you're not raising your hand, you're not reading your mail, <laughs> <laughs> or you're smoking a strange cigarette. <laughs> we used to call that in the Navy, Pakaloa. Okay. Anyway, the bottom line is it's pretty expensive, and it does vary quite a bit by, the, uh, by different countries. Now, one of the things that we look at in our model for cost of data breach is churn. If you basically get a letter from, say, your bank, say it's, you have your bank at Citibank, and the, ch and the letter says something like, by the way, your data is lost or stolen, we're really sorry, please forgive us and give us another chance, <coughs> a lot of people will say, sure, you could, you, we'll, we, we'll cut you some slack, you know, it's, it's, a, it, it's a hard world and large banks get hacked all the time. I think, that, by the way, Chase was another mega data breach, that was huge. So. The second time it happens, say it's like two weeks later, and you get another letter from Chase, oh, by the way, we had another data breach, but hey, we're getting better. We're going to get so good. We're, this is gonna... 
The third time you have a data breach, you're out, baby. You're gone. You find another bank. You just say, no, I'm never going to bank at this crummy bank because that bank is not a good steward of your information. And in reality, this doesn't happen to lots of people. A lot of people will talk in the game and say, oh, I'm not going to work for, I'm not going to buy from Amazon if they had a data breach because, you know, or I'm not going to use my this credit card because it's not safe. You know, that's, we, we talk about it, but in order to actually act on it, we basically see a big gap between what we say versus what we do in privacy. So we look at churn. These are people who actually leave as a result, or, or change, they don't necessarily leave completely in some cases, it be, it, as a result of getting being notified that their data has been lost or stolen. We're talking about like customer data here. It's a very interesting event. Now, let me just tell you a little bit about some other Poneman studies. One of the studies that we did years and years ago, we've been using it for tracking ever since. I think it's now tracked in about 60 different Poneman studies since oh, over 10 years ago. We look at the general population of folks and we actually, based on the behavior of these individuals in response to privacy-related issues like a data breach, what the reaction is. And the three buckets are people who are privacy-centric, people who care about privacy enough to change their behavior, people who are privacy-sensitive, which is most of us, where we say privacy is important, but we are not changing our behavior. We do the same thing every single day. And then privacy-complacent. And this is where a lot of college kids and graduates, and my kids who are now growing up, but when they were in college fit this, where they say, I don't care about privacy. It's not that important to me. And therefore, you could post any picture you want on your Facebook or whatever. No one's worrying about it. Well, the people who are privacy-centric are basically not going to churn. The people who are privacy-sensitive, they only churn when something really bad happens, like you, you are a data breach victim, and then later you find out that you're an identity theft victim. That, is, that motivates people. But the privacy-centric people, the percentage of people who are in that category, basically are the ones who are, who are willing to, to discontinue a relationship uh, because of a privacy concern. And by the way, I didn't tell you the stats, but in the world that we've been looking at, about 10% of the population fall into the category of privacy-centric, about 60 to 65% privacy-sensitive, and the rest are privacy-complacent. Okay? So that's kind of what, and, it, and if you talk to your, any Europeans here, because some people will say, well, in Europe, we're all privacy-centric, but it's not true. Those percentages are true. We did, did it in a number of countries. They're maybe a little different here and there, but the pattern is definitely the same. Okay, the size of the data breaches that we look at in this study range from a minimum of about 2,400 records that are compromised and a maximum of 102,000. Remember I said the range is about 1,000 to 100,000. Sometimes in the process of doing our research, we actually help the company say, oh, by the way, we found another 2,000 records that you should include in your database, and that's exactly what happened here. And they don't even pay us to do this. We actually, we give them uh, free consulting and benchmarking services. But anyway, the upshot is the range is pretty wide. <coughs> okay, so I told you a little bit about the total average cost across different countries. The average, the minimum is about $125,000, $24,000. The average is about $3.5 million. And the maximum that we, look, that we measure here is about $23 million. So in terms of average cost to these different case studies, these different companies that participate in our study, there's quite a bit of variance as well. Now just looking at your face, it looks like you're a little tired right now. 
So let's just stop what we're doing and just stretch. I'm serious. Let's do jumping jacks. Oh, okay. Let's kind of get the nerve at our neck. What do we have to do then? Let's do the neck thing. Okay, good. Okay, total average. I appreciate that. I feel a lot better now. My back was hurting. Okay, in terms of the per capita cost for this sample, the minimum per capita cost was about $23. The average per capita cost is about $145 per record, and the maximum per capita cost is about $479 per record. So there's, again, quite a bit of variance in terms of the cost per record. Now, I referred to the way we do our cost model. Our cost model, use, we use a technique called activity-based costing. And activity-based costing is you model the cost against different known activities. So what's known are activities, but basically what's unknown are all the costs that are incurred. And costs could be labor costs, they could be overhead costs, they could also be the um, sunk costs, or in, we sometimes refer to it as like replacement or like a reputational cost, for example, could fall into that category. And now the churn is just one aspect of cost. There's also the cost of customer acquisition. So for example, when you have a big data breach, companies have to win you back. And or they, in order to get a new customer, they have to give more because of a reputation impact. And that's also factored into our equation. A great example of that, by the way, is anybody use a PlayStation in your life? Okay, Sony, you don't want to admit it again, but they had a, you probably remember that Sony had a big data breach, and I think that was a, like 100 million. It was huge, it was a monster. Um, in order to win new customers, they basically gave, gave uh, like free uh, services and free games and gift coupon, like if you bought a new PlayStation, you could get it at below their cost, and they ended up incurring about $127 million in order to maintain their level, their customer level because of that, because of the data breach. It's a huge deal. So in terms of the cost activities that are most cost, costly, lost business, ex post response, notification cost, which is the cost of letting people know that their data is breached, is really not that significant, but it's the, the smallest cost category. And then detection and escalation, detecting it and then getting it, the information into the right hands. This is my EKG diagram. That's supposed to be funny. It's not, it's not my EKG diagram. It really isn't. What we did is we looked at the relationship between data breach size and total cost. Because people would say, well, Larry, or Dr. Poneman, they would say, let me, let me see if I understand this. The larger the data breach, the more costly it's going to be. And the answer is, sure, of course. The more records you lose, the more costly. So what we did is we actually plotted out. And you'll notice, though, there's a lot of zigging and zagging on this. And this tells us that cost is, yes, it increases with the size of the data breach, but it's not the only factor. And there are cases that we've looked at over time that are small amounts of data that are lost or stolen, huge economic impact. Here's my favorite story. I can't mention the name of the company, but it's a very large investment management company located in New York. And they had a data breach. They had an employee, a rogue employee, that decided she, she was disgruntled and said she's going to leave this company and go to a competitor. Okay, and this is an investment management, like investment, uh, um, you know, how, how would we describe, not just brokerage, but, you know, the big stakes. You know, not just a crummy job, but big stakes. And, you know, what ended up happening is she left and took 4,000 records of customers. But the 4,000 records weren't just customers. 
they were the highest wealth customers of this investment bank. So it was 4,000 of like the El Primo people, people who had like millions, tens of 20, 30, 100 million dollars. And she then proceeded to say, hey, I'm now at a new company and I want to continue to work with you. And people, the high wealth customers went totally ballistic. They said, you didn't secure my data. You allowed one of your ex-employees to take data. Well, forget about you. They were not forgiving and they lost. The churn rate for that group was about 13%. It, re it represented about $277 million of lost costs in terms of the lifetime value of those relationships. Small amount of data, 4,000, doesn't seem like that much. But again, if you're dealing with some people with real resources and they don't want to be in the situation where at any point in time an employee can make copies of data and steal it and then use it. And of course, that other employee got the, the, the woman that did that was prosecuted and, and was in a world of hurt as a result of that. So it does happen. Here's another EKG diagram. And this is the relationship between this churn rate that I told you about and per capita cost. The higher the churn rate, the higher the cost. So churn, and that makes sense, as I mentioned before, because when you lose the lifetime value of a customer, like, for example, someone gets so ticked off because of you losing their data that they no longer will use you or buy your product. It could be very, very costly. And so it's that little magenta line, by the way, is a regression and it's upward sloping. It's a very low-tech way of analyzing the data. We do more sophisticated analysis like logit regression and a whole bunch of other techniques. We use fuzzy logic sometimes. It's, there are cool ways to look at data. Okay. Now, as the big warning, as I mentioned before, because we don't have some of the slices of that pie I showed you are really too small to form definitive conclusions. But again, over time, we were able to look at patterns of data. And what we see is health information, a data breach involving your health record, for example, is the most costly, followed by education, like student records or you know, FAFSA forms or you know, things like that, pharmaceuticals, financial, communications. Notice way down on the bottom are, is retail and public. The reason why public is at the very bottom, I bet you can figure this out, but it's late in the day, so I'll help you. What happens in most of the uh, industries, if you have a higher churn rate, more likely people are going to leave. What happens if the government loses your data? Say it's the Veterans Administration. What happens? Do you churn? Do you say, well, I'm not going to do that veterans, I'm going to go to the other veterans administration. You say, no, it's a monopoly. So you're kind of stuck. So you may get angry, but it's very hard to have, you know, a meaningful churn. So we actually try to model it a little bit differently. But the end result is that's why public sector, they basically are riding the curve of being a monopoly. Retail is a different story, though. And because of all these major retail events like Target and Home Depot, Neiman Marcus, Michaels, and I'm sure there are like a hundred others, even Sears. Um, I think people are now starting to look at retail differently. They say, wait a second, this could be a big deal because it's not just the, the, my, the products I bought, but it's basically my credit card or my debit card that's at risk. That could be, so I think over time we're going to see retail move up because of some of the big stories. We also do the same analysis by abnormal churn rate, the churn rate I was mentioning before. And I know it's hard to see. This is going to get you dizzy. There's the cost and churn. You'll notice that it doesn't match up perfectly, but it does match up closely, where pharmaceuticals, financial, and health are kind of high on the list. Public sector and retail are low on the list. And then there, we have uh, different industries that are kind of in the middle. 
Now, one thing I should have said, by the way, I'm sorry I'm jumping around, is this idea of a data breach involving large amounts of data. So we think of data breach, you know, there are laws that require companies, to, uh, organizations to disclose when your data is lost or stolen. But there's also a different type of data breach that we're not looking at here that is very interesting to us and we're spending time now starting to think about how to measure the, this, is the loss of small amounts of high value data. An example of that would be, hypothetically, a, a real story, um, a large company builds aircraft engines. That's what they do. And they spend about a half a billion dollars developing a new type of turbine engine, which is just state-of-the-art, really fuel-efficient, operates on, like, uh, under, with just kerosene. I mean, it's amazing. That particular design, again, was about a half a billion dollars of research and development, we think ended up in the hands of uh, a Chinese <laughs> hacker and maybe used for uh, the, the, the defense. I, I can't tell you too much more than what I'm telling you here, but these kinds of events don't have to happen a lot, but if you have enough of these, you probably are in a world of hurt. Um, you know, you, you basically look at R&D, R&D is always going to be expensive, and there's an advantage. If you basically build it first and you have patents on it, you could make a lot of money, and that's, that's the world of business. But if, you can, if it leaks out too early, and it ends up in the hands of uh, an organization or an unfriendly government, it could be enormously expensive. So we're looking at data breach in terms of your data, customer data, but there's also the, that type of a data breach that it could be very, very costly, and we're starting to model it, but we're not there yet. Maybe I'll come back here, Gene, and do that paper when it's, when it's done. Okay. Now, this is boiling the ocean, right? What are the root causes of a data breach? And if you had to think about it, you probably could come up with at least 100 different categories of root causes. But there are, there are actually three, generally speaking, root causes. There's malicious or criminal attack, right? There are system glitches. The system messes up. And there's human error, negligence and competence, okay? So we basically think of these events as like Target, for example. Oh, we had some Russian mafia thing. These people were attacking us. And you know, probably that's true. And it does happen, but it doesn't happen all the time. A lot of data breaches happen still because of negligence or incompetence or system glitches. And someone asked me, so Larry, what's the difference between a system glitch and a human error? A human error is we attach blame to the individual. The system glitches, we attach blame to a whole bunch of individuals because we don't know which individual was individually the incompetent person that pushed the button and made the mistake. So system glitches and human error, we can almost put it together as they're not malicious, they're not criminal, but they still cause a lot of grief. And so I know it's like glamorous to think of the hacker, and it does happen, but it's really not the number one category. What's very interesting, which I don't know if I have a slide here, that 42% has been growing. I think when we first started looking at it, it represented the malicious or criminal category was about 20, less than 20%. So it's more than doubled over the last nine or 10 years. So it's more of the data breaches aren't because of stupid, good people doing stupid things. It's about bad, bad people who do, who are amazingly smart and, they, they're, and they're doing great things for themselves. Now, when we have a malicious or criminal attack, guess what? It's more expensive. So, for example, the cost per compromised record of a malicious or criminal attack from our current study is about $160. A system glitch is about $126, 
and human error is $117. And the reason for that, remember that activity-based cost category called detection and escalation? Detection costs are more significant around the malicious or criminal attack. So that, I don't think this is that surprising, but definitely if you're going to have to spend your resources stopping things, it might make sense to think about the most costly things first, stop those dead in its tracks, and worry about the others. But the, the reason why I wouldn't say don't, don't worry about human error, because fixing the human error could be as simple as just training people and giving people more information. Also, there's a lot of pressure on people in the workforce. So even though you know it's wrong, people still do it and take shortcuts. That's another problem. Wow, look at this. Can you read this? This is like all the guy sitting on the, on the ground. Can you see it? I can. Okay, there's a lot of data here. So we have those three root causes, right? So take blue, magenta, or say red, and green. Looks like the American flag, I just realized, and then green. A merger of Ireland and the US. A merger. So if you kind of look at this, you'll see uh, that um, by country, that the, uh, the percentage of attacks vary, actually, in, in some interesting ways. So for example, if you look at malicious or criminal attack, the Arabian cluster, that's it's Saudi Arabia and UAE, and, and uh, uh, Germany, which is abbreviated by DE, it's about 50% of all of the uh, attacks were criminal. Now, if we kind of go way down to the bottom and look at human error, UK, human error is 40%. Uh, IT, uh, IT stands for Italy, is 35%. BZ is Brazil, is 38%. You'll notice, though, that the root cause of uh, external, external hack is a lot smaller percentage. One would argue is, hey, does that mean that German companies have a larger bullseye, that the bad guys are more likely to go after Germany? The answer may not be as simple as that. It's very likely that in Brazil, these companies are just not aware that they were breached. So therefore, they basically are unaware. They don't have the ability to determine uh, whether or not it was an external hack or whether there were even there were any data breach event whatsoever. This is a big problem, by the way, because you know we do these studies and we present the boards of directors of large companies after they have a problem. And what we find is that a lot of these companies have the belief that if they don't know about it, it's OK. Like, in other words, <laughs> Don't tell me, Larry. I don't want to hear, because then I have to do something. And we're talking about some good-sized companies, you know, not little mom-and-pop companies, but companies that are on NASDAQ or New York Stock Exchange. Um, now, that's a lot harder to do today than eight or nine years ago, because you know, the ignorance is bliss, we call that. That's not acceptable. And the FTC and regulators are paying really close attention to this issue. Okay, here's the per capita cost by three root causes of the data breach. And this is in terms of dollars, not on a percentage basis. And as I said before, you'll see the U.S. and Germany are definitely the most expensive. France is close. And then India, Brazil, and Arab cluster uh, are on kind of the lower side of that equation. Okay? Now, if you thought those presentations were complex, just wait. This is very <laughs> complex stuff. So we have negatives and positives. What's going on here? We actually look at a whole bunch of factors that we think affect the data breach cost. And a priori, we don't know whether it is or is not. These are based on our belief, and then we test it with the data. And what we basically see is certain events actually cause cost to go up, and other events cause the cost 
to go down. Okay, does that make sense? So a negative, think of a negative number as a cost savings and a positive number as an additional cost, incremental cost. So in terms of what's making the data breach more costly, if the data breach involved a lost or stolen device, if it was involved a third party, because a lot of data breaches, by the way, are not just company messing up, but third parties that you deal with are messing up. That becomes a big deal. The, the ability to notify quickly, that adds cost. And even engaging consultants. This one got me into trouble when I was presenting to a major consulting firm recently. They <laughs> said, what do you mean we, we're, we're, we help you? We actually are cost savings, not according to the data. A little bit of cost. Now, what actually are the cost savings? These are the good things. Having a CISO or someone who is a senior level security executive that is involved in the data breach and may be responsible for it. BCM is business continuity management. This is a new one. We start to look at the relationship between security and business continuity management. Business continuity management, these folks are, their whole mission is to be prepared for like an outage in a data center or a big hurricane or whatever. They know and they prepare for the worst case scenario and have a plan that allows the organization to be resilient, hopefully, to these problems. So business continuity management being involved in the data breach, beautiful. You actually have cost savings. Having a plan, an incident response plan, cost savings. And this one is, is obvious, but we look at it anyway. Having a strong <coughs> security posture. If you basically have a strong security posture, you're still not out of the woods. It doesn't mean that you're immune for, uh, for, uh, for a data breach, but the reality is it does reduce the cost pretty substantially. Okay. What is this beautiful graph telling us? One of the things we did this year is we use a methodology called subjective probability modeling. And using this framework, we basically asked the respondents who were, remember we had like 314 companies, but we had nearly 1,800 individual meetings. People in those individual meetings, we asked them to estimate, extrapolate the likelihood of a data breach of different sizes over the next two years, ranging from 10,000 to more than 100,000. And you'll notice, as you would expect, the probability curve is moving in the right direction. But basically, the probability that you're going to have a material data breach, according to the subjective probability distribution, is about 22% every year, not every two years. I messed up before. I said every two years, it's every year. So that's a big number. It's, so it's when you have like $5 million, it's not a one-time event. If it's happening over and over again, it could be a very, very costly proposition. I think the average was $6 million. And then if you look at the subjective probability of a data breach by country, uh, remember India was really low in cost, but the probability of a data breach in India is very high, and that's because a lot of companies in India have lots of data points, a lot of data, sensitive data. And so there's potentially a higher probability that we acknowledge of data leakage. Brazil is number two. Notice the companies that had the lowest cost are at the top of this list. And then Germany is actually very low. We find that German companies acknowledge the fact that data breaches can be costly, but the frequency of data breaches is actually predicted to be a lot lower because the German culture and a lot of Poneman studies is very, very security oriented. So for example, we have attitudes, oh, you want me to encrypt that email? Never. I'm not going to spend time doing that. But in Germany, culturally, it's just what people do in order to keep information safe and secure. So it's 5.10. And I think we have time for some Q&A. Is that okay? Remember to turn on your mic. Turn on the mic. 
and Gene is going to pay $100. <laughs> <laughs> that's a subjective. No, that's a subjective probability distribution. It could be about anything. Yes. Have you noticed a change in the past few years? You indicated you present to different boards of directors in the responses that you're receiving based upon the information you've been providing to them. Gosh, yeah. Um, it's a very interesting question that you ask, and that is, uh, have attitudes directors changed? And in fact, we're, we're going to publish a study, I think, in the next two or three weeks. We have the data analyzed and everything else. We just have to write the report. Well, we actually interviewed um, not a large sample, but a sample of directors of publicly traded companies in the United States. And in general, I think there is a huge difference over time. I think originally boards of directors didn't see this as a strategic issue. They basically say, you know, as long as we have good people like a CISO and basically they're getting the job done and we don't hear about anything, we're going to assume everything's okay. That was the attitude, prevailing attitude, eight or nine or ten years ago. Now, because of potential individual liability, you know, there's director-level liability for gross negligence and all the reputational issues and a lot, and the Target, I think, event has had an impact as well because I think of their ten directors, seven are fired, their CEO's fired. I think we're seeing the same thing now with, um, with Home Depot. Mm -hmm. So I think directors are starting to take this very seriously and they say, look, we may not have managerial responsibility because they really shouldn't, that that would be a violation of their fiduciary obligation, but they have oversight responsibility. That means they need to ask questions and they need to be smarter around security. In one company, not to mention the name, but they're actively going to recruit a person for the board who is someone like Gene, a true expert in security, because they need someone who has that ability. They acknowledge that they're directors, they have a person who's like a CFO or, you know, retired CFO of a major Fortune 10 company, you know. They have people like that, but they don't have a security expert, and they want to make sure that the board is balanced with people who really know this stuff. So, you know, in terms of long-term career, this is the greatest place to be, in my opinion, because it's such a dynamic field. And when you start seeing boards of directors, me members of boards who specialize in security, that is a big deal. Yes, Gene. So I was interested to see your numbers on the churn factor. I've seen some other studies that have indicated that for instance, TJ Maxx as an example, and there are some others in yeah. breaches, um, only had a momentary, a week or two change in overall stock price valuation. Right. And then it went back to where it was before. It so even with the churn, it doesn't seem to have had a significant economic effect on, on the companies. And how does that yeah. play out with your it, data? It's funny. We did, um, this is one of our unsuccessful studies that never saw the light of day, but we had this idea that we could do an event study and we actually um, work with folks at the University of Chicago to try to do a model. And we actually looked at all publicly traded companies at that time that had data breaches. And we found that there was virtually no event effect at all. So a data breach didn't seem to affect stock prices. But I think that's changing a little bit. I think there's been so much public scrutiny that suddenly investors, shareholders, not just you and I, but shareholders of companies, including in institutional investors, are saying, wait a second, a data breach can have some very serious economic imp impact on the company. As long as it can demonstrate a serious economic impact, they're going to pay attention to it. Now, also, another motivating factor to that, by the way, is the SEC. SEC came up with guidelines. Not man they're not mandatory. But it's a step in the direction of making it mandatory where if you have the li high likelihood of a costly event like because of a security exploit 
or a compromise or, or event, uh, a data breach, you need to disclose that in the financial report. That makes it a very, very big issue. So I think that historically the stock didn't really move in the direction like, like shareholders said, I'm, I'm annoyed. I think we're starting to see more of that today. And I think in the future, especially if the SEC comes up with mandatory requirements where there will be a very significant effect on stock. Thank you. Great question. Thanks, Gene. Any other questions? Yes, sir. How accurate are these numbers and projections? Because the way that you are talking, I'm a little bit skeptical about the numbers when there are a lot of numbers thrown at you. I feel like, a lot of numbers at you. No, I'm just saying, like, you, you didn't make it more than a stock market because they make a lot of things and a lot of projections. When it doesn't happen, then the stock price doesn't change that much. <coughs> That's maybe the mentality that people are scared, but then after a while they say, oh, it was just some numbers. So how accurate are these numbers that and projections? In the, in the lifetime of one of these events? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question because I think basically we generally assume when we see a number, like for example, there was 100 million records and that we basically think that that number is known with absolute certainty. There's a lot of uncertainty in this. For example, one of the areas of a big myth is that if I have a data breach today, that over how many days will some of those people who were breached become data identity theft victims? Like somehow there's a correlation between these events. There, there should be. Intuitively, we think that's the case, but it may not be the case. So there's a lot of, unfortunately, when you do studies like this using activity-based costs or whatever, you're, basic, you're basing it on fundamental assumptions. But it's never perfect. In fact, a lot of the ways we like to present the data today is using like a um, a, a precision interval, but it's, this is a number, but it could actually be using statistical methods this high or this low, and we feel like that might be a better way to present it. But there's a lot of, unfortunately, fuzz, not just in, from a research perspective, but when companies have a data breach, they may not fully be able to understand and articulate the economic impact. So it's, it's a big issue. If we have SEC requirements, though, We'll basically have to have a methodology that's you know that is approved by accountants and finance experts, and that that will be kind of the next phase. That will give a little bit more precision to the process. Because basically, maybe because the way I look at it is maybe some of these big guys they're looking at another lever to up and down the stock market or certain stocks. So maybe a lot of times this is used as a tool for the people to to be abused rather than to be used. No, good point. Good question. I haven't thought about that. That's very interesting. Have a co-authoring a paper with me on that. <laughs> very good idea. Okay. Any other questions? Well, thank oh, you again, Larry. Oh, oh it, you got some more. Um, I noticed on one of your later slides that India had a very low per capita cost. Do you think part of that could have been due to the large population there as compared to the other countries, or did you normalize for that? Yeah, we normalized on the country size, but basically I think the reason, you know, again, there may be more than one reason, but number one, labor costs. I think labor costs in India are just so much lower. So even though you might have labor associated with repairing the reputation and doing all the good stuff, it's not that these people are doing less, it's that their salaries are lower. So I think that had a huge impact. Brazil, on the other hand, is a different story, even though, again, you have a difference in the currency. Um, but basically, it seems like they're might, maybe doing less things. I know it's like now intuitively, but it seems like the Indian companies are really on the up and up, and they're trying to be strengthen their security posture. But we didn't necessarily see that in Brazil. Not to pick on Brazil. Brazil does a lot of good stuff. But in terms of data breach management, it seems to be more at risk.
Good question. Thank you. Yes, sir. Do you have any charts that show the frequency, how much it's changed over the last so many years? I, the answer is yes, absolutely. You know, we have a whole inventory, if you will, of reports going back 10 years. And we actually have some of their, like an infographic or infographics that show net change over that period of time. So I'd be very pleased to share that with you. Now I'd have to know how to get it to you because I never met you before. But uh, you give me a name and an email. I promise not to spam you. But uh, <laughs> if I do, Gene will kill me. So I won't do that. But definitely we can get that information. I'll spam you back. And you will spam, double spam. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, let's thank our speaker once thank again. Thank you, folks. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Gene.